and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God that surpasses all comprehension shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Silent prayer is designed to give each individual the opportunity to make sure they're in fellowship. Scripture teaches that as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, that when we sin, we don't lose salvation, but we do hinder or break fellowship with God. We lose that ongoing rapport. In the language of Galatians, we're no longer walking by the Spirit. We're walking according to the flesh. To recover, we simply confess our sin, and at that instant, we're forgiven and cleansed of all unrighteousness. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer before I open in prayer, and then we'll begin our study. Let's pray. Our Father, we're grateful that we have your word that explains to us the nature of reality. And as we study your word, we realize that that it is your word. You have designed us as your creatures in your image and in your likeness. You have given us our capabilities and our capacities, and you have designed us both in terms of our material and physical makeup as well as the immaterial and spiritual makeup. As we study your word, we come to understand uh, what these components are and how we are to uh, understand our our makeup, our composition, and how that impacts how we think and how we live and what we do. Father, as we study today, we pray that you might challenge us to be like the Thessalonians, who in terms of their application were a testimony, were an example to all around them. And we pray that we, we will understand the things that we study today. In Christ's name, amen. All right, as we continue our study in First Thessalonians, today we're going to look at the last three verses in chapter 1. Chapter 1 basically serves as the introduction for uh, Thessalonians, and what we see when we come to the last two verses is a sort of summary statement of what will be covered in the rest of the epistle. Many times you find this in Scripture where the writer of Scripture gives a bit of an outline or structure in a topical sentence somewhere in the introduction. Sometimes it's a little uh, harder, a little more difficult to find than other times, but usually that you will we will find that. And this is true in verses 9 and 10. In verse 9, Paul says, For they themselves declare... That is, those outside of uh, Macedonia, where Thessalonica is located, they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and first of all, how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. 
That's sort of the present tense reality. That's what happened in the past and describes or summarizes the present tense uh, spiritual life and testimony of the of the uh, Thessalonians. Uh, this goes from or the Thessalonians. This goes from two uh, one to the end of chapter three, uh, verse thirteen. And then verse 10 of chapter 1 says, gives us the second part, which is to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. That's the eschatological or future orientation that is the topic that is covered in chapters 4 and 5, one of the great chapters in the Bible on the rapture. So First Thessalonians um, 1, 2 through 10 serves as a general introduction to the epistle, and verses 9 and 10 give us a rough outline, verse 9 give, uh, de- being developed in chapters 2 and 3, and verse 10 developed in chapter um Chapters 4 and 5. Here we have a map just to reorient our thinking to this location. Thessalonica in the ancient world called Salonica today is located in what at that time was uh, Macedonia or Macedonia as we usually pronounce it in English. And it was a major seaport. Uh, Paul was only there for a short time on his second missionary journey. Uh, some people think he was only there for a few weeks. I think he was there maybe two or three months. But during that time, he was there long enough to communicate a basic framework of doctrine to these new believers who were composed of both Jews and Gentiles. Paul had something of a hostile reception from the uh, Jewish community there, and so he had to leave uh, rather quickly. And it wasn't long before he received uh, Timothy and Titus while he was in Corinth, and they had uh, brought with them some questions from the Thessalonian believers. And so he's responding to that in both the first and then the second epistle uh, to the Thessalonians. Uh, it was on a major trade route, and so they were on the Via Ignatia, which was one of your major east-west highways, and so there was a tremendous amount of commerce. And this uh, <clears throat> this would have been one of the reasons that Paul can talk about the fact that that they have become examples to all, that's verse 7 as we looked at last time, that they became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. We often think that uh, in our age of mass transit, mass travel, mass communication, that word travels pretty fast, but they had their own systems of communication, and word would spread uh, through those systems of communication, maybe not quite as rapidly as we have today, maybe not in hours or a couple of days, but certainly within a few weeks and a few months. The fact that a group of Thessalonians had become Christians and were making an impact on the culture around them spread throughout both areas of what we call Greece, both in Macedonia 
and Achaia. It was because of their spiritual growth that they're making an impact, and this this is forming their testimony and their reputation. So verse 7, as we concluded last time, they became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Now, today what I want to do is look at the next three verses and talk about some of the things that are mentioned in these verses for further understanding and clarification. In verse verse 8 we read, For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, which of course was just mentioned in verse 7, but beyond that, also in every place. That goes back to understanding the uh, the trade routes and their location on the trade routes so that the, the, what had happened in Thessalonica, the uh, testimony that they had is carried not only regionally but also beyond the region of Achaia and Macedonia up into areas uh, that would have been to the northwest. Uh, we have here, if you go up, uh, let me see, I think this is a broader map, yeah, a little bit. If you go up to the north and west of, of uh, ancient Macedonia, you get into the areas today, uh, former Yugoslavia, of, uh, of uh, uh, Bulgaria and uh, Romania, and those areas, and so that was an expansion in that uh, area just to the uh, east and north of the Adriatic Sea. So that's expanding in that direction. It would have expanded also into Thrace. Uh, and so the entire area here uh, would have uh, heard about what was taking place in the church at Thessalonica. That certainly has an impact for application in our world, we live in a world, of course, where in some senses here in Texas, we're still pretty, uh, pretty much influenced by the Bible Belt. There's a lot of churches, and so you don't necessarily have a reputation that develops, but over time, there should be a reputation that develops among certain churches, and we can think of different kinds of churches that we have in Houston. And uh, yet we, as a small congregation, should be known for certain things. And the most important things I think we should be known for are the emphasis on the Word of God, spiritual growth, application, evangelism, missions. These are things that should be priorities in any, any local church. Uh, churches should not be known. I mean, it's not wrong, but it's not the priority in Scripture for their music or for... Uh, some of the other things that many churches have in terms of of other of uh, various programs where the word of God is not at the at the center of the focus in the church now when we read this verse, we read for from you and that is a Greek phrase uh, apa plus the second person plural pronoun indicating the, the from the totality of them, from all of them, from all of you, the word of the Lord has sounded forth. And this phrase, the word of the Lord, should be understood contextually that this is talking about the word of God. If you look back to verse 6, you, Paul says, And you became followers of us, 
and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction. So what they have, they're receiving is the message of the Lord. We're not talking necessarily about scripture because at this stage, very little of the New Testament is scripture. What they are offering is an interpretation of the Old Testament, applying Old Testament prophecy to Jesus as the Messiah. Of course, today we could apply this to the Word of God in terms of the Bible, but at that time there were only a couple of, uh, a couple of New Testament books that had been written. First and Second Thessalonians are the second and third epistles that Paul wrote. He wrote Galatians at the end of his first trip. So of the Pauline epistles, this is only the second epistle. So there's only one that he's written before this. James was probably written before this. Matthew possibly was written before this or approximately at this same time. So at this stage, the New Testament canon is not even, uh, probably not even clearly understood because nothing yet has been written with the exception of one maybe maybe two other uh, other writings. So uh, <clears throat> this is not talking about the Bible. You can't say, for from you the Bible is sounded forth. It would be more the message of the Lord, the gospel, at, at its, the very least, the proclamation of the good news that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah who came and died for the sins of the world. And probably more than that, considering the fact that they have grown in their Christian life, and it's a result of the fact that they have become imitators of of, of Christ that Paul, that Paul's emphasizing uh, in the previous verses. They became followers of us, that is, mimetes, imitators of us, and of the Lord. So they have learned a good bit of doctrine, and they're applying it. It's not how much you know intellectually, it's what gets transferred into application that's important. That's what built their reputation. So Paul praises them and says, For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth. They've been involved in evangelism. They've been involved in teaching opportunities. And this has expanded uh, through the regions and territories of Macedonia and Achaia. And beyond that, which is what's indicated in the phrase, also in every place. Now, the verb that is translated sounded forth is a word that's only used once in the New Testament, exekeo, and it means to sound forth or to sound out or to blast out like a trumpet or to reverberate like an echo. So it is not a mild word. It's a very dramatic word that Paul has used that they are announcing throughout the uh, ancient world of Greece, they are announcing what has happened. They are, they are uh, very overt and outspoken in the way they are talking about Jesus Christ and in the way they are challenging the pagan culture around them. And this has built a reputation for them uh, throughout that region. And then the next thing that we see here in the verse, the last sentence as it's broken up into English is, your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. And uh, the, the important phrase there is there, your faith 
uh, toward God, your faith in the direction of God. This is a Greek preposition, pros, which indicates direction to or toward, or with the accusative here, it has the idea with reference to God. Uh, your faith, we would say your faith in God, but your faith with reference to God. And we need to talk a little bit about what he means when he says your faith. We need to define faith. We need to understand that there are two different kinds of faith in the New Testament, and we need to understand something about what faith describes and what faith means. So I'm going to cover this in several points. The first point is basically introductory issues and just some of the questions that uh, need to be addressed. First of all, is biblical faith a supernatural faith or a natural faith in a supernatural object? Let me ask that question again. Is biblical faith a supernatural faith or is it a natural faith in a supernatural object? This is a major issue that's discussed today, especially in debates over the uh, nature of the gospel, debates between Calvinists and Arminians. Uh, in strict Calvinism, saving faith is a unique kind of faith. It is a faith that is a gift from God, and uh, it is not the same as every other kind of faith. People recognize that every day we utilize faith in many different ways. You sit down in the chair and you believe that it's going to hold you up, and you sat there and you really didn't think much about it. Uh, you believe when you get up in the morning that you're going to go in and you're going to uh, uh, flip a switch and turn the coffee pot on, and you believe that it's going to work. Every now and then something doesn't work, and our faith is not well-founded. But we believe that certain things are going to happen, and we believe... Um, we trust that that is uh, going to take place the way it should take place. Now, is that the same kind of faith that is saving faith, or is saving faith this kind of supernatural gift that God gives? That's a major issue, especially in the free grace lordship uh, debate. So we have a question on also in terms of is there a faith in Jesus that saves, and a faith in Jesus that doesn't save. And this also is a major issue in discussing faith between the uh, so-called lordship Calvinists and uh, those who believe in uh, free, uh, free grace. And then another category that comes up is the area of uh, head faith versus a heart faith. Uh, we have to understand something about the nature of faith, is faith, especially if you're talking to somebody who is, uh, comes from a purely empirical scientific background, or somebody who is taught from the framework of an, of an empirically based type of modernist Christian, um, uh, denomination that doesn't really believe in supernatural revelation. They say, well, I can't explain that logically. We just have to believe it by faith. They juxtapose faith with knowledge. 
Whereas Hebrews chapter 11 says faith is a different kind of knowledge. It is rational. So one of the issues in discussing faith is whether faith is rational or irrational. Some people think, well, you, you just believe it even though it's absurd. You believe it even though it's not rational because that's what your religion says. But your religious belief over here is totally separate and distinct and doesn't need to conform to what's going on in within science. And maybe science hasn't correctly interpreted the data, but they see this kind of a juxtaposition where faith is juxtaposed and is contradictory to uh, scientific knowledge, whereas the reality is that you can't have any kind of knowledge without faith, and we'll get into that as we go through this study. So we have this question that's raised, is faith uh, inherently rational or irrational? Uh, Is faith something you believe despite evidence, or is faith something that is that operates on the basis of evidence? And you'll even find some a number of evangelical Christians who don't understand this issue. Throughout the scripture, you have an emphasis on evidence and the value of evidence as confirming what God has said. It doesn't prove it. Those are important distinctions in those words, uh, but confirming it. One of the reasons you make a distinction there is if it proves it, then there's some level of authority over the word of God. There's no authority over the Word of God. The Word of God states something, and it's true. There used to be a little uh, cliché that was reduced to bumper stickers some years ago. God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. Um, it has those three lines in the wrong order. It indicates that the settling of the issue follows believing it. The reality is God said it, that settles it. Now, the issue is whether or not we're going to believe it. Um, that has to do with with faith. And do we trust God and believe him? Now, throughout the Old Testament, God gave many different forms of evidence. The greatest evidence, of course, in the New Testament is the resurrection of Christ, after which uh, Luke states in Acts chapter 1 that Jesus appeared to his disciples giving many convincing proofs. So, so there, that, that the faith of the New Testament is something that is built upon a evidence that is built upon that which is rationally defensible, not on something that is irrational or illogical. When it comes to discussing faith, one thing that is often heard and is confusing for a lot of people is that pastors, theologians, Sunday school teachers, Bible teachers, often teach that that faith uh, involves something more than simply uh, belief, something simply more than assenting or agreeing to something as true. They usually add things like commitment, obedience, uh, some sort of moral change, or turning from personal sin. How do you know that you have real saving faith? Well, it's because you've committed your life to Jesus or you have seen some sort of moral transformation, or you have turned from personal sin. These are often added to a concept of faith. So it's often faith plus. It's not faith alone. And so, but then they, what they've done is they very subtly 
embedded in their definition of faith these other ideas so that for them faith means commitment, faith means obedience, faith means moral change. And without those other elements, it's an inadequate faith or a non, uh, non-saving faith. And of course, one of the more popular ways that faith is, is wrongly described is through this kind of distinction between a head faith and a heart faith. And then you'll hear people say, well, you have to have a head, fa- have a heart faith because a head faith is just intellectual. But a heart faith is what truly saves you. And you'd be amazed at how much stuff there is. I did a, did a search on the internet on head faith versus heart faith. And you can just find hundreds and probably thousands of sermons and papers and things trying to support this idea that there are two different kinds of faith that there's a head faith and a heart faith. But the Bible never makes that kind of a distinction. And often what happens when they do this is they uh, misidentify what the Bible means when it talks about the heart. And uh, and when you look at the Scripture, the emphasis in Scripture for, this, for the Christian life is always on thinking. And the head is the, and usually the Bible never talks about head as the location of thought anyway. It talks about the heart as the location of thought, uh, because it's not using the heart in reference to the physical organ. In fact, the Bible never uses the word either lave in the Old Testament or cardia in the New Testament as a physical organ. It's always used in a metaphorical sense. And it refers to that which is at the center or at the core of something. And often the word heart is used with a broader meaning, almost as a synonym, for, uh, as a complete synonym for uh, suke or soul and uh, or nefesh for the soul in the Old Testament. And often it is used for the primarily for the thinking part of the soul. There's only a few places where you can see an emotional connotation to uh, heart in the Old Testament. About 95% of the time, it refers to the thinking part of the soul. In the New Testament, of course, you have an emphasis on thought and thinking. Uh, Romans 12.2, we're told that we're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And uh, 1 Corinthians 2.6, we are to focus on the thinking, the mind of Christ. And in Luke 24:45, when Jesus was explaining the Old Testament to the disciples uh, on the road to Emmaus, he said that he uh, opened up their understanding, that is, he opened up their mind. How do we comprehend Scripture? It is through the, uh, through the mind, whereas the heart is often also indicated as a place of thinking. For example, in places like Genesis 6-5, Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart. The heart is a place of thinking. The heart is a place of intellectual activity. Deuteronomy 15, 19, Beware lest there be a wicked thought in your heart. So there again, the heart is a location of of thought and intellectual, uh, intellectual activity. Psalm 15, verse 2, He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart, 
that has to do with your thinking when you're just thinking to yourself inside of uh, quietly inside your mind you're thinking inside your mind that's thinking in your heart in the core of your being uh, psalm 49 3 says my mouth shall speak wisdom and the meditation of my heart that's the thinking the cognition the intellectual activity takes place in the heart the meditation of my heart shall give understanding so we see that meditation here in this verse precedes comprehension or understanding so now remember that because when we come back to talking about the components of faith one of the components of faith is understanding and it seems to me that you can't believe something you don't understand and just because it makes sense to you just because the pastor has said it and you think oh he's a great guy he's always right i i understand it doesn't mean we understand it We've all been there in the process of our uh, Christian life. We hear things, and we just sort of take it as that, well, I don't understand it at all, but he said it, so it must be true. What we see here in the Scripture is this distinction between uh, uh, understanding something and just knowing it or having heard it and generally agreeing it. I don't think we can believe something we don't understand. Now, that doesn't mean we understand it comprehensively. But we have to understand, uh, what something, what something means and what is intended or communicated by a sentence. I've asked people, uh, at times in Bible classes or read something and say, well, what does that mean? I don't know. Well, do you believe it? Yeah. Well, how can you believe something you don't know? You can't, you can't tell me what it means. You can't believe something you don't know and you, that you can't understand. And that's why it's important to be able to put things that you've heard taught from the pulpit in your own words and to be able to express that it gives you a a, an under, a sense that you truly understand what it is that you claim to believe the last verse i have up there uh, acts 8:22 states repent therefore of this your wickedness and pray god if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you once again it's talking about heart being the location of thinking Another passage from the Old Testament where we see a synonymous parallelism, thus my heart was grieved and I was vexed in my mind. Heart and mind are juxtaposed here as synonyms. So in many places in the Old Testament, if not most places, heart means the location of the thinking within the soul. This is very under, important to understand that. So in terms of introductory issues, just to summarize it, we have to understand uh, or address the issue, are there two kinds of faith? I believe there are two kinds of faith, but not the two kinds of faith that you have from from lordship salvation, that one's supernatural and one's not. I believe the Bible talks about two kinds of faith. One is faith in Christ for salvation, justification, and another is faith directed toward God for spiritual growth. It's the faith of the spiritual life after salvation. They both mean the same thing, but when we look at a passage, we have to understand what is being addressed here. We're talking about Phase one justification faith, or are we talking about phase two spiritual life faith? 
And there's no phase three faith because we walk now by faith and not by sight. But when we're in heaven, we're going to walk by sight. So in glorification, there's not a faith system that works. Faith is operational only in, only in this particular, uh, only in this particular light, life. And, um, and then we have to recognize that this uh, very popular but misguided uh, distinction between head faith and heart faith just can't be substantiated in the Scripture. Now, of course, the verse that people go to is say, oh, you've got your wrong in this, and we've studied this before in Romans and many other passages in Romans uh, 10, 9, and 10, and in Romans 10, uh, 10, we read, for with the heart one believes unto righteousness. But see, if you read a meaning into heart that is not biblical, then you will uh, misunderstand this. The heart is the place of intellectual activity. Faith is an intellectual activity, as we see, and so we, you do believe with the heart, but the heart is not referring to uh, emotion here. It's not referring to anything other than the place of intellectual activity in the soul. Okay, let's go on. And the second point, I want to develop a little bit about what I said of different kinds of faith in the Scripture. Every passage that you read in the Bible is either addressing how to have eternal life or how to live on the basis of your possession of eternal life. One of two things. One is either telling you how to get justified or the other is telling you how to live now that you are justified. Every passage in Scripture is addressing either getting saved or living the the Christian life or the spiritual life after salvation if you take it to the Old Testament. Those are different different kinds of faith in the sense of of their object of faith. One is the gospel. One has to do with the promises and the principles uh, of Scripture. Uh, so they're related to different objects of faith, but they're not different kinds of faith in terms of supernatural versus natural, which is what uh, we see from from the lordship uh, theologians. Romans one seventeen says, "For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith." That's talking about faith at phase one, as we've talked about in the past, that instant when we trust in Christ as Savior, to faith, which is the faith that comes after salvation. And then there's a quote from uh, Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith. So we always have to address a passage and say, well, what kind of faith is this talking about? Is it related to getting saved, getting justified, or living a spiritual life? Now, in 1 Thessalonians 1.8, where it says, um, your faith toward God has gone out, this is, it could include the gospel, but it includes their, their trust in God, uh, probably both the gospel and, but especially their, their Christian life, because he goes on to talk about the fact that they have turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Serving the living and true God is not the gospel message. That's what comes after salvation. And so this passage is talking primarily about that faith that comes after salvation. The object of faith after salvation has to do with the promises and principles of God's Word. In other words, everything that the Scripture teaches. Now, faith in the Bible as a noun is what they refer to as a verbal noun. 
it, it describes something, it's a noun, but it describes something of action, something that you do, you believe something. And often the word faith represents the content of knowledge. So that is also related to our spiritual life as we grow spiritually we learn what the Word of God teaches. We learn the content of what we believe. We understand it, and that becomes our faith. That is what we believe. And so in in uh, 1 Thessalonians 1.8, Paul is talking about their faith in terms of their advance in their Christian life, in terms of their understanding of doctrine. So this is the second, primarily the second kind of faith. Now, third point here, I'm going want to go back and just talk about the nature of faith a little bit. This is really a, a huge area of discussion in understanding the gospel and the debate that exists between the so-called uh, free grace versus lordship debate. Now, recently, there have been some uh, some developments that have taken place in terms of terminology. The term free grace has has come to be a little bit muddied. Uh, the term free grace was initially emphasized by people who were opposed to lordship salvation. It was a term that was adopted very strongly by Zane Hodges and those who was a professor at Dallas Seminary. In fact, I had uh, took first-year Greek under uh, Prof. Hodges uh, when I was at, at Dallas, and in terms of free grace, you had the development of an organization called the um, uh, FG, uh, not FGA, uh, GES, the Grace Evangelical Society. Now, unfortunately, by the time we get into, everybody has, not everybody, but a lot of people have little odd idiosyncrasies to their theology, and uh, Prof. Hodges certainly had some idiosyncrasies to his theology, and some of those idiosyncrasies became blown out of proportion, and I don't believe that they were actually scriptural. And one of the views that he held was that you really don't have to believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. You don't have to believe that in the substitutionary atonement. You don't even have to know that Jesus died for your sins. All you have to do is believe Jesus can save you in just some sort of rough, generic sense. This has come to be known um, pejoratively as the crossless gospel, which I think is um, is a, a, an accurate term. And, and this has been promoted by uh, the head of the GES, uh, Bob Wilkin, and some others within GES. And this led to something of a split about uh, 10 years ago, between about 2004, 2007. A lot of these issues percolated out and uh, caused a split within the uh, so-called free grace movement. Uh, another thing that happened about that time is that another organization started called the Free Grace Alliance. And the Free Grace Alliance actually started uh, for a different purpose. It wasn't a reaction, although I think that it, it when, when some of these uh, doctrines related to uh, GES became a little more pronounced, then people tended to see uh, FGA as an answer to GES, 
I was at one of the first meetings, uh, some of the uh, formative meetings uh, of Free Grace Alliance at pre-trib, and I think this was around, it may have been even as early as 2003. I think I was still at Preston City when they had an initial meeting uh, at, at the pre-trib rapture meeting in, in December, and I remember we were at the, the um, uh, we weren't at the hotel where we now meet. We were at the other hotel, so at when it was the, uh, I think it was the Harvey Suites or something. When we were there, Harvey Hotel, so that would have been a good while ago. And the purpose was that the GS was seen as primarily an academic uh, association oriented to defending the gospel and dealing with issues related to the gospel. But this group of men saw the need for another organization that would focus on uh, starting seminaries, Bible colleges, supporting missionaries, a much more broader movement that would where with, within which the gospel would be clearly uh, clearly taught, just promoting more the application in a sense of a free grace theology as opposed to dealing with uh, the uh, academic intricacies of a free grace. Unfortunately, in terms of of uh, FGA, uh, they they had they have annual meetings, and I went to a couple of them, and I wasn't at all convinced that that they were um, they were that beneficial uh, to what I was doing. J. B. Hickson, who has a was involved with, in fact, I think he had a full time position with FGA for a while, uh, left that organization. Uh, he's got a paper out called Why I'm No Longer Free Grace, and he sort of co-ops from Ronald, a statement Ronald Reagan made uh, one time uh, early on in his political career when asked why he became a, a Republican. He said, he said, well, it wasn't because he changed his beliefs. It's that the Democrat Party left him. And uh, that's sort of how J.B. saw this. He hasn't changed any of his beliefs in the gospel. It's that these organizations have become uh, associated and known for some uh, unusual, if not aberrant, views of doctrine. And he's tired of saying, telling somebody, uh, I believe in free grace. And then somebody says, well, do you believe in a crossless gospel? Or do you believe that... Uh, Christians who are failures at the judgment seat of Christ go to sort of a thousand-year purgatory during the millennial kingdom, some of these other views. And so those have been tightly associated. So there have been some other people who have come along. Some people say, well, we want to talk, use the term true grace. Uh, there's another group that it uses the term bold grace. The issue is it's really grace versus some sort of diluted, if not perverted, definition uh, of grace. Grace means that God does it all and we don't front load or back load the gospel with works either as something that confirms genuine faith or that is necessary to be in addition to faith. So we always have these battles. I think Satan attacks us through vocabulary and it seems that now there's a battle over whether or not free grace is really a good term because it's picked up some uh, connotations because of the way way some group some grace groups have have emphasized certain strange doctrines that have become uh, too much associated with their with their movement uh, but one of the core issues in understanding grace going back to the very beginning of uh, the things that were written and studied in the 80s 
coming out of, of uh, really the impact of Zane Hodge's books, which were very thought-provoking and helped, helped uh, to really uh, focus the issue on the gospel, is what's the issue? What is faith? What exactly does faith mean? And so in the next two or three points, I want to talk about what faith is. Faith is a mental activity. I think we've established that. We believe in our heart. The heart is the location of intellectual activity. We believe something. Belief, when you look at uh, literature, secular literature, non-religious li- literature on knowledge in the field of epistemology and, and philosophy, faith is viewed as a ment- mental activity, something that is triggered by volition. You choose to believe something. The reason you choose to believe something is because you have become persuaded that it is true. Persuasion is an intellectual activity. But persuasion, the the verb persuade in the scripture in English is a translation of the Greek verb patho, which is a cognate to pisto, which is the Greek word uh, for faith, pistos, which is a Greek word for faith, uh, pistevo, which is the, the verb form. Pistevo and patho are related, but they're not synonyms and they're not identical. This is another thing that came out of the um, uh, Grace Evangelical Society group is that there were those that were saying that persuasion is the same as faith. So you don't make a volitional decision to believe something. Now, as I've read some of their articles, I think we have to nuance what they're saying in light of what they're countering. And that is that there seems to be a group within evangelicalism that emphasizes the decision, uh, the decision moment in, in faith. That, that, that if you don't know when you made a decision for Jesus, then maybe you're not saved. Uh, they emphasize it, that you have to know this, this decision. It's, uh, some people have called it decisional theology. And they're not really saying, um, I, I don't think some of the people who are talking about this on the GES side were really saying that, it, that volition's not involved. They're just saying that, that this idea that you have to know the moment you made a decision, uh, this emphasis on presenting the gospel, that you have to make a decision for Jesus got a little bit squirrely. And I think that there's something to that. But the way they tried to argue it, uh, too often they came across sounding as if volition wasn't involved. At every stage, if you are talking to somebody and you don't agree with them and they're trying to persuade you of their truth that they're saying, at each point, if you, if you were to graph this on a, on a, um, on a timeline, slow it down in every second, along the timeline, at each second you have to decide whether or not you're going to accept um, that their argument at that stage is true. So decisions occur, multiple minor decisions occur all along the process. Now, this may seem something like people are butting heads over something, but 
there was a pastors conference. I don't think it was the last pastors conference we had it in Southern California with Schaefer Seminary. It might have been the next to last one. And there was a huge headbutting contest over this because what was happening at Schaefer Seminary at that time, this was 10 years, uh, over 10 years ago, is that there was already beginning to appear this split between those who believed in free grace and those who didn't. There were some on the faculty who were influential who had fallen uh, completely under the sway of uh, Zane Hodges and Bob Wilkin, and they were arguing for this. And I remember uh, uh, Charlie Clough, myself, George Meisinger, and a couple other guys on the board, and we were working through this, and it was a, a it was not a pleasant scenario. And this went on for two or three years, and it was one of the factors in why Chafer uh, Seminary sort of uh, moved out of Southern California, and the reason we had to go somewhere, and we ended up going to uh, to Albuquerque. And so this this just shows that there are some real divisions. Uh, and some real squirrely thought in um, in the free grace, so-called free grace movement, specifically grace evangelical society. But as we look at the concept of faith, we say it's a mental activity that's triggered by volition. We make decisions as to what we're going to accept to be true. It's based on understanding arguments and being convinced of the veracity of something. Therefore, faith is not emotion. It's intellectual. It has to do with understanding. And also, just in terms of basic syntax and grammar, in Acts uh, 16.31, we read, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The word believe there, pistevo, in the Greek is an aorist active imperative. Uh, belief is something that is addressed to the volition. Any command, an imperatival mood, is addressed to the volition to make a decision uh, to do something or not to do something. And so faith, just in terms of the grammar, indi- or belief indicates uh, a mental response uh, to a command. Now, something else that we have to understand about faith is that faith is always directed toward an object which can be expressed in a proposition. Let me break that down for you. You believe something. Someone, and the reason it's expressed as a proposition is somebody says something. A proposition is a technical term in logic for a statement uh, that we would call a declarative sentence a statement that can either be proved to be true or proved to be false. What did you do last night? Is that a proposition? No, because it can't be proved to be true or false. Go to the store. Is that true or false? No, that's a command. It's neither uh, verifiable or falsifiable. But a proposition, the sky is blue, it rained last night, uh, these are statements that can be proved to be true or false because uh, uh, they're verifiable. There's some sort of evidence to support their veracity on one side or the other. So when you believe something, when we believe in Jesus, you'll hear here's, this is another point, which I'll come back to, but a lot of people, I've heard people say, oh, in the Bible we're not believing principles, we're believing in a person. Oh, that sounds good. It'll preach. But it's hogwash. 
none of us have had a direct encounter with Jesus, I hope. Uh, he doesn't appear to people today. Paul had a a direct encounter with Jesus, but it, the, the, the core issue of his faith could be expressed in terms of a proposition, which is Jesus is the Messiah who died on the cross for my sins. Either you believe that's true or you don't believe it's true. This is what um, uh, John says in John 20, uh, 31. These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. What do we believe? We believe a statement. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who died on the cross for our sins. So it's expressed as a proposition. Belief always focuses on affirming a proposition to be true. So it's not a function of emotion. It's a function of reason, and we believe with our mind. Now, historically, faith has been broken down into three categories, three elements to faith. This is a very traditional way of talking about uh, about faith. Uh, these three terms on the left are the Latin terms, notitia, which means understanding, ascensus, which means to assent or to agree, and fiducia, which means believe. And the way this is explained uh, historically is that first you understand something. You understand what the proposition is saying. If you're saying Jesus uh, died for my sins, then you have to understand what who Jesus is. You have to understand what the death involves, and you have to understand my sin. Jesus died for me. You have to understand the concept of substitution. Once you comprehend that, and it can be at a basic, basic level, it doesn't have to be at, a, at an exhaustive level, then you can agree or disagree that that is true. And so then you have the second area. I believe Jesus died on the cross. I believe that's true. That's a true statement. Fiducia is a third element, and what has been argued by a number of people, not only free grace people, but one of the best books on this was a little book by Gordon Clark called Faith and Saving Faith, which I read about 25 years ago. Gordon Clark is a five-point Calvinist, uh, primarily known for his works on, on apologetics, uh, but and his works on philosophy. He taught philosophy, Christian philosophy, at Butler University for most of his career. And what he shows in that book is that when you assent to something, you believe it's true. And and what happens on the other side, you hear people come along and they say, well, you know, faith isn't intellectual assent. Faith is something more than that because... And what verse do they always use? I want to make sure I quote it correctly here. It comes out of Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. And in Hebrews 2, uh, in the section dealing with faith and works, there's the statement in verse 19, you believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. And they'll say, see, the demons just have an intellectual faith. They have a head faith, not a heart faith. Well, wait a minute. What is it that the demons are believing in verse 19? Are they believing that Jesus died for their sins? Are they believing anything that is a salvific proposition? No. They're believing that God is one. They're believing that there's only one God. Is that what's, what you believe in order to be saved? Not at all. 
So what ha- at, from the very beginning, what I find in reading uh, uh, theologians and those who assert this is that uh, they don't understand that that verse has absolutely nothing to do with salvation at all. It has to do with with um, uh, belief in monotheism. Second, their belief is an efficacious belief. How do we know that? Because they tremble. Because they know it's true. So um, they assent to its truth, and that is the same as... Um, uh, as belief, there's nothing extra that's added to it. Anyway, when we agree that something is true, it is intellectual. There's nothing else with which we can believe. There's no other part of our body with which we can believe. We believe with what exists between our ears. That's our brain. That means belief is intellectual. It is nothing more than that. So what happens in traditional Reformed theology is fiducia is used to add something more to make it saving faith. And this is an an essential problem. So we have to understand that faith is always directed toward a proposition, and that proposition is a verbal expression of something that can be true or false. Now, we have to believe the right preposition, proposition, not preposition, but proposition. The right proposition is not, I believe the Bible teaches that Jesus died for my sins. I believe my parents told me that Jesus died for my sins. I believe Sunday school that says that Jesus died for my sins. None of those are going to get you anywhere. It's like saying, if I were talking about creation evolution, I might say, I believe that Darwin teaches that we evolved from monkeys. That doesn't mean I believe that we evolved from monkeys. Those are two radically different statements. And some people who have a, let's say, a wrong faith in Jesus, it's because they don't believe in Jesus. They believe, oh, that's what the Bible says. That's what somebody else says. They have never said, I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins. There's a difference between saying, I believe Jesus died for my sins, and I believe that the Bible says Jesus died for my sins. Those are not the same thing. So we have to understand what the correct proposition is, and that is that Jesus died uh, died for my sins in my place, paid the penalty. This takes us to the fifth point that we don't believe directly in a person or come to salvation through a relationship with Jesus. Often you'll hear people express the gospel and they say, do you have a relationship with Jesus? Didn't do much for Judas. Judas had a great relationship with Jesus, hung out with him for three years or more. Didn't get him anywhere. The issue isn't do you have a relationship with Jesus. It isn't... um, have you believed in the person of Jesus versus a proposition? It's that you either believe Jesus died for your sins or not. So this, the conclusion of this is that faith must be rational and not irrational. And it must, we must be able to describe the content of faith rationally and logically and therefore be able to discuss it. So point six, faith is an activity of the mentality of the soul, which is directed first and foremost to something expressed as a proposition. Now we get into what brings it merit. That's point number seven. Faith has no merit in itself. It's not the kind of faith that I have. It's what I'm believing in. 
all the merit lies in the object of faith. If I believe that I have uh, $1,000 in my checking account and I'm wrong and I only have a dollar in my checking account, I'm in trouble. I'm going to bounce some checks because I have agreed to the wrong thing. I have affirmed the wrong proposition. I have believed the wrong thing. So it's what we believe, not the kind of faith that we have. Eighth, just as a reminder, faith as an intellectual activity excludes emotion. And emotion is not compatible with faith. Faith is related to belief in something, so it involves understanding, and then as we understand it, we believe it. Now, this takes us back to a basic chart we've seen many times. I'll just quickly review it. We have three, four different ways in which we know something. They're all related to knowledge. They're not faith versus something. Now, some people were taught um, that faith is in contrast to reason and uh, empiricism, but that's not true. Rationalism is... Uh, basically a system where you start with innate ideas within your mind and argue to conclusions uh, deductively, but ultimately it's a faith in human intellectual ability. And it, uh, the method is an independent use of logic and reason. Empiricism is based on sense perception and accurately interpreting our sense perception, but it means that we believe that we can accurately interpret our sense per- perception. Rationalism is ultimately grounded on faith in first principles. Empiricism is ultimately grounded on faith in our sense perception and ability to interpret it. So both of those operate on faith. Mysticism also operates on faith. It's a faith that my feelings, my intuition, my, my sense that something is true is is accurate. Again, it's faith. Mysticism is rationalism gone to seed. It's not based on logic. It's based on non-logical, non-rational, non-verifiable uh, content. And then in contrast to that, it's not faith. It's revelation. We believe what God said. We believe the Bible to be true. It's not in, it's not in contrast to logic or reason. Uh, but uses logic and reason in a dependent way uh, up in relation to revelation. And then we have the ninth point, just wrap this up. Faith is not something we do, but it's the channel by which we appropriate what God has done for us. Therefore, the merit isn't in the faith, it's in the object of the faith. We're not saved by grace because of faith, because we have the right kind of faith, we're saved by grace through faith. It's a different uh, syntactical construction in the Greek. So in conclusion, we see faith is divided in two types in the Scripture, salvation faith and spiritual life faith, or what we call the faith rest drill. Now just to give you a little bit of a test to see how some of this is wrongly applied in uh in, in Christianity, uh, we have the uh, hymn, I Know Whom I Have Believed. The first verse is great. I know not why God's wondrous grace to me he hath made known, nor why unworthy Christ in love redeemed me for his own. Then the refrain comes out of First Timothy 1, I believe. 
I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Great statement on eternal security. But then the second verse says, I know not how this saving faith to me he did impart. See, that shows that the view of the writer is it's a different kind of faith. It's a faith that's imparted to me from God. It is not faith that is directed towards the correct object. So the second verse misidentifies the nature of faith and uh, buys into the idea that there is a separate kind of faith. Well, I'm going to stop here, and next time we'll come back and look at verses 9 and 10 and wrap that up. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to reflect upon uh, your word and the nature of faith and saving faith. And, Father, we pray that you would help us to understand this and that we can make a clear, precise understanding of the gospel. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.